Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Hey, welcome to Hell as an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Please send this podcast to a friend if you think they're struggling with an addiction. If you have friends and family who you think this podcast can help out, please, you know, the more subscribers, the more people that are listening, the more people we can help out and try to spread that positivity and hope on this podcast. We interview a lot of recovering addicts. We do wrongful conviction stories. Basically, anyone who has a story of overcoming hell and living to tell about it. We're probably most vocal on Instagram. You could go on our Instagram, Hell Has an Exit, and check out our videos. We post a lot of cool stuff on there. We're also full video now. So we are on YouTube. If you want to watch each episode, you can watch it on YouTube, or you can also listen on Spotify, Apple Music. So with that being said, I want to introduce our guest today, Marty Tankliff. This guy has an insane story. One of the craziest stories I've ever heard. Shout out to my friend Tina. She introduced me to him. She sent me this article of this guy. I had kind of heard about it before, but he just has an amazing story. This guy was sentenced. He was 17 years old at the time, and he ended up serving 13 and a half years in prison and was charged for killing both of his parents. And this guy was totally innocent. He was a senior in high school. He fights the case, proves his innocence, comes out, becomes an attorney, sues the city, sues the state, wins $13 million, proves his innocence, and he also basically does this 24-7 as an attorney. All he does is wrongful convictions and criminal cases. He's just got an amazing, an amazing story. He's such a good dude. Uh, I really had a pleasure speaking with him. I hope you guys enjoy his story. It is long. It's two hours, so we're going to separate it from a part one and a part two. So this week will be part one. Next week will be part two. Hope you guys enjoy. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. Uh, I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview pretty much anyone with a survival story of hell. It's cool. You're telling me that you actually have a tattoo of someone walking out of the gates of hell. It's really crazy. I do, Brian. Thank you for having me. Of and, course. And, and yes, my tattoo, the one tattoo that I have, is a man walking out from the gates of hell mm-hmm. uh, with flames. And in the gates are the number of days I was in prison, which was 6,338 days. Wow. And the man is just almost a silhouette, but Mm -hmm. it's clearly a man walking out. And it was a tattoo that it took me a long time to kind of figure out, did I really want to do it? Did I not want to do it? Mm -hmm. But it was really three tattoo images Mm -hmm. combined together. And it's something I don't regret. Yeah. Marty Tankleff, that's who you say last name? Yes, Marty Tankleff. Marty Tankleff, welcome. You know, it's exciting to have you here. You have an incredible story. We both have a mutual friend. She linked us up together. You flew down to Florida. And I just want to, you know, take a moment to, you know, say I appreciate you taking time out of your day to tell your story. And really without hesitation, you know, I messaged you. We talked for a day and a half and a week and a half later, you're on a flight. So I appreciate that. In this day and age, I I think the personal connection and and Mm -hmm. meeting people in person just makes a difference. I mean, we're, we're living in a world where we're, they're so distant or we're focused so much on technology and Zooms that you don't get that true emotional connection when you do it in person. And mm-hmm. something like this really should be done in person. Absolutely. Yeah. 1000%. And I know that, you know, sometimes we can do it over the phone. It's just not the same. Yes. Yeah, so you have an incredible story. I try not to do too much research because I, I knew like a gist of it and like Tina was telling me and telling me. And, um, you know, I just want to hear it from you. So if you want to start from the beginning, where are you from, where are you raised, you know? Sure. I'm going to do a little bit reverse, if you don't mind. Sure, sure, sure. If the state of New York would have had their way, I would be 90T3844 until the year of 2040. Hmm. So if the state of New York and Suffolk County had their way, I would still be rotting away in prison, wouldn't be eligible to the year 2040. Hmm. Thankfully, I'm not. And all of this started in Suffolk County, New York in 1988. I was a teenage kid living the good life on the North Shore in a small community of Port Jeff. 
I lived in uh, a little smaller community inside of Port Jeff called Beltaire. I uh, went to Port Jefferson High School, which was Earl L. Vandermulen High School. And, you know, I thought I was kind of like the everyday teenage kid back then. Mm-hmm. Except on September 7th, hell began for me. I woke up to discover that my father was clinging to life in his office and my mother was deceased. Wow. And from that moment forward, for a long time, my life was never the same. So you woke up in the midst of this? Someone broke into the house? So my father had a business partner by the name of Jerry Stewerman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry Stewerman owned bagel stores. My father had invested approximately half a million dollars in those bagel stores prior to 1988, over the past few years. I didn't know it at that time, but my father had started to demand some of the money back. Mm -hmm. Some of it was demanded back through notes, and there were other business dealings going on. My father was a tough guy, but he didn't really let on everything that was going on. And later on, we learned that my father had reached out to a friend to learn about possibly purchasing a shotgun. We learned that my father had told my legal guardian, who was also the family attorney, Mike Fox, that two weeks before the murders, that my father told him that Jerry Stuman wouldn't fuck with him because he knew where the bones were buried. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of us really knew at that time in 1980 what all of this meant. Mm-hmm. Uh, we later learned that what the bones were buried meant was that Jerry Stuman's son, Todd, was a drug dealer dealing in kilos of cocaine, marijuana, and other drugs. Hmm. And the bagel stores were essentially money laundering. Mm-hmm. And growing up, you have no idea any of this is going on. You just live like a normal life. You're just going to regular high school. Going to regular high school. I mean, I actually worked in the bagel stores. Never uh, saw any of this going on. Yeah, yeah. Probably because I wasn't, you know, I don't want to say I was aloof. But in many ways, like, that didn't really concern me. I was probably more interested in having a bagel and dating girls. And, you know, I was a flashy guy back then. I was a flashy kid. I was a show-off. I was spoiled. Mm -hmm. But my father was a tough guy, you know, grew up and didn't have a lot growing up. And even though he was having problems with Jerry Stewerman, it didn't stop him. And my father was part of a weekly poker game. And it just so happens on September 6th, the poker game was at our house. Mm -hmm. So when I woke up on the morning of September 7th, which was supposed to be my first day of senior year, I woke up and noticed that the outside lights were on. As I'm walking through the house, the front door was open. And as I continue walking through the house, I just know something's not right because normally at the end of any poker game, my father would have shut the house up, the front door would be locked, the lights would be off, the alarm would be set. None of that existed here. Hmm. And I walked all the way through the house to where the poker game was because everything just seemed like it was odd. Like, you know, like I said, the lights were on and I discovered my father who was bleeding in his office chair exactly where the poker game was. Wow. Now what happens from there? I ended up calling 911. I ended up looking for my mother and I discovered my mother had been deceased and the police came. And the ambulance members came. And instead of me being able to go to the hospital, because my father was alive, he was clinging to life, I was separated from everybody. I was, what I say is in many ways, was kidnapped. But you called 911. I called 911. I provided first aid to my father before the EMTs got there. Mm -hmm. And Was it a gunshot wound? Knife wounds. Knife wounds. Knife wounds. Oh, man. And, you know... I'll tell you more about this because we actually, through private investigations and further investigations, we uncovered uh, who was responsible. Mm -hmm. But I was kidnapped essentially that morning from everybody. I was taken away by law enforcement. I was never allowed to go to the hospital where my father was. I was driven probably 45 minutes away from my house and everybody was lied to. Uh, So much so that the lead detective, instead of communicating on his radio, he drove away and used a payphone to make sure that his phone conversation wasn't recorded. I was brought to police headquarters in Yapank, brought into an interrogation room, a windowless room that had a desk, some chairs, and a file cabinet, and I was interrogated for hours. 
And throughout that entire process, there was no audio recording, no video recording, even though Suffolk County had policy and procedure mm-hmm. in place that, that needs to happen. that require them to audio or video record it. They had the technology. They chose not to use it. Mm-hmm. And I've always said, had there been an audio or video recording of everything that happened in that room, this I never would have happened. Never would have went to prison. What ended up happening was, is that at some point, what were uh, they asking you? You know, who do you think did this? What was your, where were you yesterday? And consistently, I said Sturman, because I knew that there that was an issue. There was an issue there that had been brewing. And little did I know when I was saying Sturman, so was the rest of my family. Everyone else was saying Sturman. Yeah. But it, it got so bad that even before we left my house to go to Yapank, Mike Fox, who was the family attorney, who was my godfather, showed up at the house looking for me, gave McCready his business card that said attorney at law and said, I represent Marty. That's I'd... the lieutenant? No, McCready was the detective who interrogated me. Okay. Yeah, so so there's a few names, okay? McCready is one name. B, everyone should remember that. That was the lead detective okay. who, as we go into the story, you'll understand how suspicious that he was there first that morning mm-hmm. because he was off duty that day. He was supposed to be working at his construction site. However, he was the first homicide detective at my house. And he ended up knowing facts while he was driving to the house that he shouldn't have known. Mm-hmm. Like he knew that there was a card game the night before. If he hadn't spoken to anybody, how would he know that? Mm. We later learned how he knew about that. His relationship to Jerry Stewartman, my father's business partner. Mm. So then your attorney shows up there, tries to tell him, hey, you're not talking to my client because you're going to talk to me. And he just doesn't. He neglects that. McCready ignores it. Okay. Doesn't even acknowledge that I'm there, lies to him, and McCready takes me to police headquarters. We later learned that McCready had told Mike Fox that, oh, Marty's on his way to the hospital, which was a lie. Mm -hmm. And back then in the 80s, Suffolk County had a consistent policy of interrogations leading to confessions. That's how they solved a lot of their homicide cases. Mm -hmm. There was a report that ended up being issued that talked about how, I think in Suffolk County, they had a 97 to 99% confession rate, which was unheard of. I mean, it was so high that the detectives at their softball game wore shirts that said like 99% on it because they were so proud of it. Mm -hmm. And that's because the tactics that they used were super- Violent Mm -hmm. and psychological. You know, violence and psychological torture is really what they embody and they embolden and they allowed, the administration allowed the detectives to do that. But what's even worse is that the United States Supreme Court allows detectives to lie to youthful suspects. That is slowly changing now. To youthful suspects? What does that mean? So people who were, you know, under 18. Okay. And I was, I had just turned 17 on August 29th. When you mean lie, what, like, how is lying to an adult that much different than lying to a kid? Like, why are they allowed to lie to an adult? They're allowed to lie to everyone, but it's even worse when you lie to a kid. Of course. And I mean, thankfully, I've been involved some recently, some legislation that there are some states who have passed legislation that prevent law enforcement from lying to all suspects. Basically but, like saying, oh, your friend already told us everything, stuff like that. Even worse. Mm-hmm. In my case, they said, we have your hair in your mother's hands. They said, your father was pumped full of adrenaline and he identified you as the murderer. Now, every interrogation expert, every false confession expert who's reviewed my case said, it is probably one of the worst examples of lying to a youthful suspect because they said, how many kids, if they were told that their parents said they did something, would just accept it? And just get scared and think that like the adults know best and it would get sorted out later. Yeah. And, and, and the way interrogations work, at least in, in my interrogation, mm-hmm. was no matter what I said was truthful when the interrogation Really, there was a defining point where I think it went from interview to interrogation because the tone changed, the anger changed. It was almost like if I said, 
I didn't do it. They're like, Marty, we don't want to hear that. Just tell us you did it. Mm-hmm. Marty, we know you used this knife to do this. I didn't use any knife because I didn't do this. Marty, just tell us you did this. And every single question that was, I guess you could consider relevant to them, it's how it went. So it was almost like, give me, you know, they would say something to me. I would deny it because it wasn't truthful. And their response was, Marty, if you don't tell us what we want to hear, okay, this is not going to end. And after hours of going through this, you start to doubt yourself. You start to doubt reality. You start feeling alone and isolated because here you are 45 minutes away from everybody in an interrogation room and everyone around you. I mean, and these are people that I was brought up to trust. I, my my father was the police commissioner of our local town. So I was brought up to trust law enforcement, believe them, that they're honest, they're not going to lie to you. And when you have these detectives saying, you know, we have your hair in your mother's hands and your father identified you, you start to doubt yourself. You start to say, well, you know, if you're saying like I did it, maybe I did do it. And what's amazing is that there is no videotape of what happened in that room. There is no audio tape of what happened in that room. All that exists are basically what I say and what law enforcement says. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a three-page written confession that McCready wrote, never in my hand. It's not in my handwriting. It's not initialed by me. And if you, you ever sign anything, n- nothing, nothing. What I signed was like my Miranda rights card. But once again, the Miranda rights card, according to policy and procedure, you had to sign it, date it, and put a time on it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the one thing that I think people fail to realize that in cases like this, there are rules and regulations in place to protect everyone. And when you don't follow those rules or regulations, we suffer. The innocent mm-hmm. suffer. Yeah, because I've heard stories where, like, someone didn't get their rights read to them and the whole case got thrown out. It's exactly true. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my case, that was one of the biggest issues, the Miranda rights. And I litigated the Miranda rights issue all the way up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the highest federal court one step below the United States Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And the Second Circuit agreed with me. They said, you know, Mr. Tankliff, guess what? Your rights were violated, but they were violated under the state constitution, not the federal constitution. So there's nothing we can do. All right. So go back. So, I mean, one, you know, you just seen like your mom did. So like, I don't even know how a kid would even be asked to, you know, questioning at that point. It's really inhumane and crazy. (laughs) So I hate to say it, but you're using common sense and you're Mm -hmm. using humanity. But we know why. We know that McCree had a motivation. Yeah, yeah. You know, I offered to take a polygraph. I offered to give my DNA. Whatever I could do, I was there to help them. Mm-hmm. Because I honestly believe that, you know, that's what the police were there. They were there to help people. Mm-hmm. It didn't end up that way, though. It ended up that they said that I had provided some kind of oral confession, making certain missions, and I was arrested. And that night I was charged with the murder of my mother and the attempted murder of my father because he was still clinging to life. Was he verbal at all? No. Okay. No, he never regained consciousness and he ended up passing away several weeks later. The biggest issue that law enforcement had, I think, was that my entire family was behind me. Mm-hmm. So my mother's sisters, my father's brother, their kids, my friends, people who knew me were like, there's no way Marty could have done this. Yeah. The problem is, is that the media... And this is something I've always said is that our contributing factor to wrongful convictions is media is the media when they accept what law enforcement tells them without challenging it, they're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I actually had a reporter in my case who was part of the problem. And when I got out, we met up, we are friends now. And she actually wrote a mea culpa piece. Oh my God admitting she was wrong, that she failed in her job as a reporter. Mm -hmm. Her job wasn't to report simply what law enforcement said. It was to report the truth. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure she's saying, like, this is a good story. Like, this is what's going to sell. You know, this is a 17-year-old kid kills his parents is better than... Well, back then, you know, the way law enforcement said was, 17-year-old spoiled rich kid killed his parents for money. There's just one problem. The way my parents' wills were set up was I wasn't going to benefit till I was 25 years old. Mm-hmm. So as my Aunt Marianne said, what was you going to do from 17 to 25? So that was your motive. Wow. 
okay? But the problem is every single motive that the prosecutors came forward with, they ended up disproving themselves in the trial. Mm-hmm. Everything. So I can't even believe that it goes to trial because your whole family must be like, this isn't it. It's probably this person. So I'm going to give you a basic set of facts and you just tell me using mm-hmm. common sense. There's two business partners. One of them is attacked, clinging to life. The other one cleans out a joint bank account, fakes his death, tells his family he's going to be swimming with the fish, flees from New York to New Jersey, New Jersey to California, has five aliases. When he's in California, he gets his hair weave changed at a club he's not a member of, Mm. hides out in a psychiatric treat, calls his wife and says the word pistachio. Do you consider him a suspect? Yeah. Okay. That was Jerry. That was Jerry Sturman. Jerry Sturman, my father's business partner, after my father had been clinging to life for about a week to 10 days, fled the jurisdiction, cleaned out a joint bank account, faked his death, had five different aliases, fled to California. Changed his hair. Changed his hair, called his wife and said pistachio, because that was his favorite ice cream. And law enforcement claimed that in 1988, they were able to trace exactly where he was by him saying the word pistachio. And every law enforcement person I've said to said, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, but who do you think went out to California to bring Sturman back? McCready. 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 And the first thing McCready said to, to Sturman was, is, did somebody pay for you to disappear? Now, at that time, I didn't know this, but Sturman's son, Todd, was a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. Jerry Sturman had hired bikers to commit violent acts in the past. And Todd Sturman had enforcers. And one of those enforcers was Joseph Creedon. So this was all information that I didn't really know. Joseph Creedon is the police officer? No, Joseph Creedon is one of the murderers. Okay. So Joseph Creedon was one of Todd Sturman's henchmen. Henchmen. And he was one of the individuals that was actually responsible for my parents' murders. Hmm. But you don't know this at the time. You go to trial. So do they bring him? They bring him in for questioning, right? Not really. Or, or they they, bring, they, they he wasn't back. a suspect on the stand or anything. No, like that? no. I mean, they brought him oh. back. Was very, very calm. Um, but prior to trial, we have what's in New York is called the Huntley hearing. Mm-hmm. So it's a hearing to assess any statements that were attributed to me were they made voluntarily. And at that time. My lawyer was running for district attorney in Suffolk County, and the judge who was hearing the case was in contention for running for district attorney. So everybody said to me, I said, Marty, you're not winning this hearing. I, what do you mean? The facts are on my side. The laws are on my side. They said, if the judge ever wants to actually run for DA, he's got to rule against you because he needs to curry the favor of law enforcement. And if he rules in your favor, guess what? The case is over with. So he rules against me. He allows what the police said I said, uh, admitted to evidence. And in the early to mid-summer of 1988, I went on trial. Do you think if you would have switched attorneys, it would have played out differently? No, not, not at all. I mean, knowing what I know now, no. Suffolk County was, back then, one of the most corrupt law enforcement, district attorneys ever. And I mean, there's a lot to get into, but I can, I can tell you. Very, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, McCready was represented in private practice by an individual by the name of Tom Spoda. Mm-hmm. When all of the new evidence came forward in my case, Tom Spoda was the district attorney. We argued, say, how can you be the district attorney? Okay. Defend this case while you've represented Struman at some point. Well, where do you think Tom Spoda is today? Tom Spoda was sentenced to five years in federal prison a few weeks ago. Wow. While he, for his conduct, while he was a sitting district attorney. Wow. I thought district attorneys couldn't go to jail for what they did in... So they can. It was was him. So anybody who Googles Tom Spoda and Christopher McPartland and Chief Burke. Mm -hmm. They covered up uh, an assault that Chief Burke had perpetrated. And I believe what's come out is just the tip of the iceberg of all of the wrongdoings that Tom Spoda did. Because I think in, you know, history and books or whatever, you hear about these crooked cops, but you don't hear about crooked DAs. 
It very rarely. There was a law professor, Bennett Gershman, who said that because it's like you're the attorney, you know, it's like like you're the one who's supposed to like believe in the law and defend the law, and but I, I guess cops are the same way. I don't know. It's really Bennett Gershman said that the Suffolk County DA's office is the wild, wild west of law enforcement, in the sense that they do whatever the f they want to do, and they just mm-hmm. don't care. And you know, when you hear some of the stories that have come out about Spoda, it was like he was the emperor. He was like the dictator. Everybody was fearful of him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, one of my lawyers said to me, he said, you know, Morty, so you've been out over 10 years and in 10 years, look what's happened to almost all the people that were responsible for putting you in prison or keeping you in prison. Mm-hmm. They've either died or they're on their way to prison themselves. Mm-hmm. To me, if that's not karma, I'm not really sure what is. Yeah. But I know we got to go back. Yeah. So there, there's so much, there's so okay. much to this. So let's go to trial. So you go to trial. I go 17 year old kid 18 18 at this time 18 at this time because it was I was arrested September 7th 1988 mm-hmm. the trial was in 1990 and which we blows had, my mind that people sit in jail for years I was I was out on bail so th- this is okay, the, this so is the one out thing on bail. so bail was originally denied okay and my family kept pushing for bail and bail was finally granted I was released on a million dollars bail or bond, really. So and that means your family pays a hundred grand. They paid a hundred grand, or they put up a hundred grand. So if I disappeared, they had to pay. They had to pay it. And then what was even more shocking to some people is that after I was out for probably about a year, we made a modification to reduce the bond, and it got reduced in half. Because while I was out, I wanted to kind of try to live a little bit of a life. I mean, I I wanted to finish my senior year of high school, which was. Just, Are you thinking you're going to jail? Or are you like, I didn't do it, it's going to be fine, or both? I never thought I'd go to prison because back in 1988 and 1989 and 1990, I had a faith in the system. I had a faith that innocent people don't go to jail. Innocent people don't get convicted. Mm-hmm. And I remember when that started to change just a little bit. And that was during jury deliberations because you know one of the lawyers said to me, you know, the longer deliberations go, the better it is. I didn't get a verdict till the eighth day of deliberations. And, you know, people can watch the video online, but all I remember was hearing not guilty first and then guilty. Mm-hmm. Don't remember anything after that. I mean, I've seen the video, so I know it now. Yeah. But back then, the next thing I remember is being escorted to the jail going to the property room and the property room officer saying to me, Marty, what are you doing here? And I remember just looking at them and said, why do you think I'm here? They said, Marty, there's no way they found you guilty. We know you didn't do it. I go, why else am I here? The police officer said this? It was, it was a, a guard. Uh, yeah, whoever was, I don't even know if, what they were back then, but yeah, said that to me. Because my trial was public. It was gavel to gavel Everyone alive. must have known about it. People probably knew your dad in the community. Your family was all behind you. So even though the media had put the, that stuff out there was a lot of people in the community that just thought there's no way you did it anyways and there was a, a ton of people that knew i didn't do it believed i didn't do it there were people who wanted to come forward but they were scared and we've and learned like, what are they going to say oh hey he probably didn't do it you know this i mean my case was so horrible on so many levels from the police they never interviewed like friends of mine my own trial lawyer has admitted that he was partially ineffective. Like he didn't call witnesses, enough witnesses to the stand because the jury was left with hearing a story about me primarily from the prosecution. But, you know, anybody who thinks that juries are safe havens or they think that things don't go wrong. Mm-hmm. I had a juror who was giving hand signals to the prosecutor during deliberations of which way it was going. I had, after the guilty verdict, I had witnesses come forward saying that McCready, the lead detective, the prosecutor, the judge, and a juror were celebrating together. I mean, if you think there are things that could go wrong in a case, Mm -hmm. they went wrong for me. I think the whole concept of a jury is just like insane that that's still like part of the system that we use because you're literally just picking people out of a hat that have zero knowledge of the law or... Like sometimes when I watch it on TV, I can't even believe that this is still the way we do things. You know, everybody says, well, doesn't the law say a jury of your peers, right? So I always tell people, what is that? 
what really is that, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're African-American, you're 25, and all of a sudden you look over and you see people who are 40 to 70 all white. Is yeah. that truly a jury of your peers, right? It's not. Mm-hmm. It, it's one of the reasons why jury selection in America is so important to create diversity. I honestly think that court officers are really the best jurors ever. To this day, I'm still friends with some of the court officers that covered my case because they said, Marty, we knew you were innocent back then. I had a court officer who— re- And a court officer is just someone who—like, they don't do anything, right? No, no. <laughs> I mean, what I mean is like, 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 what do they do? You're, you're gonna piss a little court when you say that. I'm I mean, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna defend them. They do a lot, right? So, so court officers really are. are I thought they just like make sure that no one <laughs> throws a punch or something. They do a lot more than that. So, court yeah. officers are really an integral part of the system. Uh, you know, while going to law school, I actually had a class with a captain who was a court officer. Okay. And we did a court observation with him. We did a tour with him. And he said, you know, he goes, there's one group of people you don't want to piss off when you go to court. And we're like, oh, the the judge, the no, the court officers. And we're like, why? They said, you know, when you have a 10 o'clock court appearance Mm -hmm. and your client's supposed to be there at 10 o'clock, guess what? Your client could get lost. He may not get brought up. And it really is true because the court officers are security. They're management they ensure that the courtrooms are safe for everybody. Mm-hmm. They help organization. They help clients. They help coordinate. They do a lot. You know, if court officers didn't exist in the courtroom, I think you would have courtroom chaos. Yeah, I didn't mean it like that. I kind no, of I know. Mean, like, like, I know. Like they're not uh, making a deciding factor on the which way the, the case goes. Their uh, interpretation of the case is not never brought up. They're not. But you know what? Court officers who are regular people who are in the courtrooms have, have a seen, lot of have they seen it all and they kind of have they've they've seen it all they've seen good lawyers and bad lawyers and know. they can probably look at the client and some of the like tell signs you know how people's demeanor are or whatever they can kind of probably tell it's interesting you said that because that's something I actually heard from a prison guard mm-hmm. that actually came to visit me after he retired. And he said, you know, Marty, he goes, I had been doing this job so long, I could look at somebody, communicate with somebody, and know if they were innocent or guilty. And I know human nature shouldn't really dictate that or define that, Mm -hmm. but when you have been around prisoners or people who are accused of crimes, you get a certain gut feeling, Mm -hmm. right? You you get this gut feeling whether something's off or something's not off. Courses are the same way. And, you know, they're very helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, with without them, I think it would be problematic. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, one of the court officers was there during my trial, saw me found guilty. And he was there during my post-conviction hearings. And he actually stopped the proceedings and made a public speech. And he said, you know, he goes, almost 20 years ago, he goes, I was here during the trial. I see a lot of the same family members. And here it is almost 20 years later. He goes, it's the same case, the same family members. And arguing the same thing, he goes, if I can retire knowing that Marty's going to be free, it's going to be okay. And thankfully, I ended up becoming free, so I'm on this podcast. Wow. Um, That's what the court officer, court officer said, said 20 years later? Yeah. And since then, I've actually had a lot of communication with a lot of court officers who said, Marty, we all knew you were innocent. We all knew it. And I said, why? And they said, first of all, Marty, that, like we just knew you. We saw you. We knew it. They said, we also heard the evidence, and we knew some of the people that were involved in the case. We knew the history of them, McCready being one of them. Did that make you angry? It's like, if you knew, why did you not, like, I don't know, cause a scene, do something? My anger really, okay, is not the court officers, right? I say that the failures really start with law enforcement, and they continue with the DA's office. Wrongful convictions would not exist if you didn't have cops doing something wrong. You didn't have prosecutors who are double-checking, triple-checking, quadruple-checking. And you didn't have jurors being lied to. Because in most cases, they're jury trials. Mm -hmm. And nobody's going to prison unless the jury says guilty. And the jury kind of believes the cop. It still blows my mind that we're still going by with, like, this oath system. (laughs) You know, it's like... 
one of my friend's fathers was actually picked for, you know, he was doing the jury selection process mm-hmm. and it was a gun case. And the defendant was sitting there and during the, the selection process, my friend's father says, you got the gun? If you don't got the gun, don't pick me. <laughs> and they're like, okay, you're excused. He's like, you're, you know, he's like, you're accusing this guy of shooting somebody. You don't got the gun. Don't pick me. All right. The sad thing is, is that in my case, I was free. The jurors saw me during lunchtime sitting with my family. And after they found me guilty, some of them were spoken to and they were said, you know, why did you find Marty guilty? I'm like, well, we thought he was guilty. You thought he was guilty? That's what you did. Like, There's like, like, no. Really? You thought he was guilty? The problem is, is that when law enforcement delivers, you know, what I would say is a package to the jurors. Mm-hmm. And they're left with no other answers, right? But in my case, we actually had other answers, right? Jerry Stuman actually, we called Jerry Stuman to the stand. He testified. He, oh, so he he was in the trial. He was in the trial. I mean, we we called him. I mean, obviously, he wasn't voluntarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we called him to the witness stand. What was his alibi? What was? Oh, uh, he he said that he had left. My father was alive. That his daughter Barry could give him an exact time of when he got home. But everything we now know today, we didn't know in mm-hmm. 1988. We didn't know that, right? You know, at one point he starts screaming on the stand. He goes, I'm not on trial here. Marty Tankliff is, and he's sitting over there. Wow, what a coward and just a psychopath. Oh, it's yeah. insane. You know, it, it's what happened to me shouldn't happen to any kid, any person in this world. Okay? And I can't help but think it's like you had a supportive family. It seems like you guys had some funds for, for Bond. There's so many people that don't have anything. And that's why I say, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. Yeah, and it does. I was 17 years old, upper middle class, great upbringing. I mean, th- there really wasn't much I couldn't have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you know, at, at one point the prosecutor said, well, I did this because I wanted a new car or I wanted a different car. Well, at that time I had, was driving a lifted pickup truck. Yeah. And... I also knew that the mechanic we were dealing with was going to go to a DA auction, buy a nice car, and I was going to work with him to fix it up, right? So he actually called that, you know, they, they called the mechanic in, the mechanic testified to that. Wow, a new trial. You know, every motive that the prosecution came up with was dispelled by their own witnesses. What, uh, what were they asking you on trial? So I actually testified. You know, and, and that's something everybody says, you know, you know oh, well, you know, why would you expose yourself to that? And my belief was, I'm innocent. Let the world hear what happened to me. Let let me testify. Yeah. But some people also said that I was too prepared, that I didn't look like a kid. I was dressed in a, you know, a nice suit and tie instead of dressing a little more youthful. youthful. Um, at one point, I remember somebody saying that, you know, which one at the defense table is the defendant? Because here there were three white guys yeah, all wearing suits. Look I just like looked very attorney. young. You know, one of the things that I was told was don't look at the jury when you're being asked questions. Um, But you're probably trying to connect with them and plead with them and, like, try to get, like... When I was testifying, I just wanted the people to know I was innocent. Mm -hmm. I didn't do this. I don't care what any cop came in and said to you. They're lying. And even some of the lay witnesses, some of the the regular witnesses were lying, and I knew they were lying. I mean, Mm -hmm. the prosecution brought three girls in as their first witnesses who said I was at their house on a particular day and they made certain omissions. I knew I wasn't at their house, couldn't have been at their house, and didn't say what they said. Mm-hmm. Tragically, they all lied. Yeah, It wasn't until I got out of prison and we hired new private investigators that they went after one of them because there was two sisters and a single uh-huh. girl. And they went after that. She was a young woman then. And she's like, yes, we lied. The cops lied to us. The cops made us lie. And the cops also brought us into the evidence locker room right before our testimony. So look at all this evidence. Don't you want to put Marty away? Wow. There were so many things that went wrong even before the jury came back guilty. Mm-hmm. Evidence was withheld. And, and you know, I tell everybody, you know, what is the most powerful law firm, the biggest law firm in any area? Most people are like, I'm not really sure. I go, yes, you do. It's called the prosecutor's office. It's called the government. 
you know, yeah. and they just don't know that. They don't, it doesn't click with them. I say, think about this. I said, the prosecutors have wiretap power, subpoena power, arrest power. I said, there are cases, wrongful conviction cases, where the prosecutors kidnap witnesses, held them in hotel rooms until they testified, and then paid them. It's crazy. It's not, though. It should be crazy. It should shock the conscience of people, mm-hmm. but it doesn't. You know, when, when they hear about a dirty cop or they hear about a cop bribing witnesses to testify a certain way or identify a certain way, it doesn't shock us anymore. Yeah, we're kind of like, oh, well. Yeah, I think now people think cops are dirty. People don't really think that about prosecutors. They don't. But the problem is that a lot of prosecutors and a lot of cops have a, have a longstanding relationship. And they, they are reluctant to question them. You know, so if you have a homicide detective who comes in and said, oh, Brian is this witness. Look what he saw. Hear what he says. They just accept it. They don't kind of question Brian. Mm-hmm. They don't question maybe some of Brian's friends. They don't go out to, let's say, where Brian says he saw something to say, is that even possible? I mean, I was involved in a case where that just happened. Yeah, if a cop testifies in your case, you're screwed. I mean, we do it with speeding. If the cop shows up and says you were speeding, that's it. They All they have to do is show up and say that you were speeding. That's it. We've come to a point where we've given law enforcement a higher credibility, especially in criminal proceedings, mm-hmm. than the average person, right? And I think that's a problem. I think every person in a criminal trial has, should have the same level of credibility. Unless, let's, unless you're, let's say, an expert witness, we have specialized training, you're there, to testify about something very specific that you've gotten you know, very unique knowledge about, DNA, yeah, something yeah. like that, right? But if... Which even in, like, John Huffington's case, <laughs> is like a... The fingerprints <laughs> yeah, and the drugs. Good. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing this time and time again where, you know, science is only as good as who the examiner is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been serologists in America who have fake blood tests. They fake drug tests. I worked on a, a recently. I worked on a on a criminal case where I had a client who said who was charged with driving under the influence of cocaine, and he's like, "I've never done cocaine in my life." Lo and behold, he was telling the truth. Mm-hmm. The the testers, when they tested the prior urine sample, it was a high level of cocaine, and they never recalibrated the machine, never cleaned the machine. So when his urine was tested, it there was, was still residue l- from residue the, for yeah. it, but it wasn't him. Yeah. And that was really because, and you know, thankfully somebody took an aggressive point of view mm-hmm. because had it not been, he could be going to prison. Yeah, And I think that's where a lot of wrongful convictions, if you dig deep into wrongful convictions, there's, there's two, I would say, overriding factors, right? One is that a lot of lawyers are not prepared to defend somebody. And two is all the problems that go on with the government, with the prosecutors and the police and forensics, right? Because, you know, if you think about how prosecutors and the government and police have unlimited resources, they can call every expert they want. Drag out the case as long as the they case. want. Whereas most most people, I mean, coming up with 30 grand to fight a case is probably all they can really come up with. And that's probably going to court three times. It is. I mean, you know, if you think about hiring a high-powered attorney nowadays for a homicide case, mm-hmm. You are probably looking at anywhere from fifty to two hundred fifty thousand dollar retainer. Then and that's if it doesn't like drag on. It's if it doesn't drag on. But if it's a homicide case, mm-hmm. you know, as a defense lawyer, what that's going to entail to investigate it, and if you're going to trial, how much time that's going to take. And in wrongful conviction cases, you're almost doing double the work because you're starting from the beginning. Because you have to prove they're innocent, then you have to prove guilt on like a prosecutor side, which is almost crazy. So that's one of the issues that I think people fail to realize. So that was one of the problems that happened in my case. My defense lawyer said he was going to prove something. Defense lawyers don't have to prove anything at a criminal trial. The, the burden of proof is on the, on the prosecutors. Mm-hmm. But when you're arguing innocence, you have to establish that your client is either innocent, there was some wrongdoing that went along the way, so really, it's double the amount of work because you have to go back to the original trial and say, okay, what went wrong here? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's address the problems of the trial. Then we have to take all those post-conviction years and say what new witnesses have come forward, uh, what new science, forensics have changed, 
And that happened in my case. I was convicted June 28th, 1990. I remember October 5th of 1990, I was sentenced to 50 years to life. And, you know, it's two days I'll never forget because I remember the sentencing wasn't as horrible as the finding of guilt because my lawyer was like, listen, Marty, this is what's going to happen. You know, you're going to go to court. Uh, the judge is going to send you to 50 to life. You know, you think at 19, you're thinking 50 to life, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, is this real? Like, you know, trying to process that as here I am innocent, here I am like, I was living this great life, like anything I wanted, boats, cars, girls, whatever I wanted, like I had in life. And here I am going to prison, like young white kid, 135, 140 pounds, like how am I going to survive this? Mm -hmm. And literally it's walking into hell. There's no, you know, I, I remember somebody asked me one time, they said, are there any good prisons? And I kind of <laughs> said to them, I said, do you hear your question? Having the word good and prison in the same sentence just doesn't make much sense. Mm -hmm. I go, I don't think there's any such, I don't think there's any prison that's good. Mm -hmm. I said, there may be prisons that are better than other prisons, but I don't think such as a good, good prison. prison. Yeah. You know, it's at least not in America. You know, if you if you go beyond America, you go outside our country, mm -hmm. uh, you go to Netherlands, there are prisons over there that are not like prisons, you know, where people are treated like humanely, they have keys to their doors, there's windows, and that's why the crime rate is less elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But I remember June 28th being found guilty, October 5th being sentenced to 50 years to life. And then it was a few, few weeks later, I was brought up to downstate correction facility which is a processing center in Fishkill, New York. And I was assigned 90T3844. And the T is not for Tankliff. Uh, the T is because they normally would start with the letter A, but after 10,000, they go to T in downstate. So that Why year, you, just because you? there are different letters are designated for different jails. Okay. I think Ulster was R, I think Attica was D. So downstate was A and T in 1990. Okay. So 90T3844, I was the 13,844th prisoner. And I remember the guards consistently saying, you're not a name, you're a number. That was pretty much drilled into us no matter where we went, that you're 90T3844. And that's a hard thing to process when you've grown up kind of a normal life, that now all of a sudden you are a number and you're in a prison full of convicted murderers, rapists, robbers, mm -hmm. and those are just the guards. Those aren't the prisoners. Mm -hmm. Because in some of the prisons, the prisoners are less harmful than the guards. Yeah, The violence that exudes in some prisons is scary as shit. But I also know that there's a lot of humanity in prison which people are shocked about. I was in Clinton Correctional Facility and there was a female officer who was scared of one particular prisoner and she approached a group of us and she said, listen, Mar, she goes, if anything ever happens, please protect me. And we looked at her, it was like, Linda, what are you talking about? <laughs> she's like, she's like, yeah, the guards won't protect me. She goes, you guys will. Wow. And it was one of those defining moments when we understood that she saw the humanity in us. Mm -hmm. You know, there was one officer in prison. His name is John. I won't say his last name, mm -hmm. but he was the best officer ever in prison. He was an officer who used to say, I come in for eight hours a day. If something during that eight hours that, that, that can make your life better, I'll do it. And I'll tell you, we had the most respect for him. He was human. He was caring. He was kind. He was compassionate. He suffered from some of his own evils mm -hmm. that he was able to share with some of us. But I think that's what made him such a unique person. And then I can go to the extreme, okay, and I'll say this guy's name, Randy McClure who was a guard at Comstock, mm -hmm. who loved to tell the old guards what I was in jail for and get other guards to try to harass me. Oh, wow. And try to get me hurt. And- By other guards. By other guards, by other inmates. Thankfully it didn't work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thankfully it didn't work because he was one of those vicious, malicious guards who just didn't come to do their job. Mm -hmm. You know, He was one of those guys that would come to do their job and stir shit up. Mm-hmm. I mean, what other experience did you have from being like this sheltered kid to like going into prison? Like what what were like some things you learned very quickly, like the do's and don'ts of like going there? There's really nothing that can prepare you. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, my first exposure was going into the Suffolk County Jail, and I made some associates, and I stayed in touch with a few of them because they were going into state prison. So I kind of had a little bit of a heads up. But, you know, living in a six-by-nine cage in Suffolk County Jail where you've got a bed, a toilet, a sink, and there's bars, there's no privacy, you, you learn that privacy is gone. If you're not very strong-willed and strong-minded, prison will destroy you. If you think about every time you go on a visit, when you come off the visit, you have to get stripped naked, bend over, you have to spread your butt cheeks. The officers can be very abusive during that process as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, very demoralizing. But, you know, you don't want to go on a, you know, it's do you go on a visit and see your family and friends or not? Yeah. You know, you're, you're forced with these decisions and it's kind of like, it's hell. No matter which way you look at it, there's a hell to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're living in a cage. You're, you know, you're being held captive. I used to tell people I was kidnapped. I was kidnapped by the state of New York and thrown away, and they prayed I would just disappear and die. Wow. What was your family going? Th- like, what was your were your family telling you? Like, oh, we're going to get you out of here. We're going to get a different attorney. Everybody believed that. Everybody. I mean, you know, my my lawyer said, "Listen, you know, I'm going to step away. I'll help you get a new lawyer because." Most lawyers who do trials don't ever do the appeals. So we had one of the best appellate lawyers come in who thought, Marty, you know, this is great. We've got some great legal issues, great factual issues. But also realize this, that from the moment I was found guilty, more witnesses were coming forward that were providing my lawyers with favorable and exculpatory information. Mm -hmm. That continued for years. Favorable to you. To me. Yeah. That like literally, you know, within days of me being found guilty, we had witnesses come forward saying, oh, the police were looking at other suspects. There was jury misconduct. And literally before I was sentenced, because most people would say, wait a minute, June 28th, October 5th, that's a really long window. Mm-hmm. That's because we had post-conviction hearings where we had witnesses testifying and we were trying to say, listen, look at all this new stuff that came out. Didn't matter. Um... So here I was in prison. I go from downstate to Auburn Correctional Facility. Auburn is really in the dead center of a town. The cell blocks are so tall that they overlook this 40-foot wall that you can actually look into the town. And I remember meeting somebody there by the name of Bill who said, the easiest people to convict are the innocent and they're the hardest to exonerate. And he said, Marty, you're going to have to figure out a way to help yourself and fight for yourself to get out. And I'll never forget that because it was at that moment I was like, okay, I'm going to spend as much time in the law library, researching the law, helping my lawyers out. And that's what I did. In 1993 was when my first appeal was argued. Mm-hmm. And Now, you're thinking you're getting out. I'm thinking the system has to work. I'm thinking like, Okay, you know what? You, you can't incarcerate an innocent person. Like, the system can't function this way. And I'm saying, okay, you know what? The law's on my side. The facts are on my side. Like, this is going to work. And I remember the lawyers saying, you know, that they filed the briefs. They were strong briefs. They go to court. They argue the case. It's four judges. And the reason why I say four judges is because my uncle Mike, who's an attorney in California, asked my appellate lawyer, Mark, and said, what happens if it goes 2-2? Mark goes, Never happens in criminal cases, not in the second apartment. Well, what do you think happened in my case? Went 2-2. Went 2-2, right? So unbeknownst to us, a fifth judge was brought on, and the fifth judge had a connection to the Suffolk County DA's office. Mm -hmm. We never knew he was brought on. All of a sudden, the decision comes out. It was 3-2. Two judges voted to dismiss the indictments against me and set me free. Three voted to keep me in prison. Hmm. It was at that moment I kind of went, like, what the fuck? Like, And this is three years. Let me ask you, how much law did you learn in three years? A lot. I mean, I spent as much time in the law library as possible. I understood appellate issues. I understood how in the first level in New York, you know, you can argue facts and law. But when you go to the, if you lose in the appellate division and you have to go to the court of appeals, Mm -hmm. it's primarily only law. You think at that point you're just as knowledgeable as most attorneys? No. No. I I, I don't think – you know, Mark Pomeranz was – I just want to know like how much law education you could get in prison in three years. A lot. Okay. A lot. I mean, 
I ended up working in the law library, so I ended up doing as much reading and research as I could. Computers weren't available in prisons mm -hmm. back then, so we learned the old-fashioned way of picking up a book and shepherdizing. A going, what? A book. I'm just messing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, don't, don't, don't forbid, when I got out and I went to a lawyer's office, I said, where's the law library? <laughs> Guy pointed at a computer. I go, I don't know how to use that. They go, God, you'll figure it out. Well, and it was one of those moments I was like, oh, shit, like, uh -huh. what do I, like, I was used to walking into, like, when I was going to law school, having a physical library, I was like, okay, I'm in my, like, natural realm, yeah. like, I understand this. It's like a whole other thing. I'm trying to just, like, wrap my head around this, so. You can't. Yeah. Nobody can. I mean, you can't fathom that here I am, 1920, in prison, 50 years to life, in Auburn, hanging out with bikers who are, like, six foot six, long hair, tattoos, like, true badasses in the prison system, uh -huh. right? And yeah, I was going to ask, like, who's your friend in prison? Who's your friends like, in prison? I, I had a very diverse friends. And I mean, like, the biker, Sonny, and Pirate, and Rex, and, like, there were a lot of these guys. And the weirdest thing is I remember, like, a group of them saying, you know, Marty, like, we actually wish you were guilty. I'm like, what? They're like, we would feel better if you hanging out with us if you were guilty. Like, <laughs> we know you're not, and you don't belong here. And it was like, it was one of those moments in prison. Did they, like, corrupting you? It wasn't, it was almost, though, like, even the prisoners felt bad for you. Felt bad for me. And even the prisoners could see I was innocent and didn't belong yeah. there. And I'm thinking to myself, like, these were stone cold criminals and they were bikers. Mm -hmm. They knew things. Like, they knew how the system worked. They just knew it, right? But I remember in, in 93 getting that phone call and I remember the lawyer saying, like, well, we got good news and bad news. And thinking, like, oh, fuck. Like, good news and bad news? Like, well, like, well, the good news is two judges voted to dismiss, dismiss the indictment against you and set you free. And like, Which doesn't mean it. Like, so what's the bad news? Like, well, three voted against you to keep you in prison. I'm kind of like, what? Like, it just almost didn't process. Cause I'm like, wait a minute, we went four judges. How did that happen? If you want to say there's a good sign to this, okay, is that the dissenting opinion was so powerful, it left a resonating impact with some people in the legal system and the judiciary. And in New York, it's one of those weird things that you have to ask permission to appeal to the next higher court. Mm -hmm. Because I had two judges that voted in my favor, I could ask one of them to grant me permission. So we did. We asked them permission. They went up to the next higher court. And the next higher court actually agreed to hear my case. They heard my case. They ruled, you know, after the oral argument, the lawyers thought, oh, we went great, 1994. But I remember getting a phone call. Marty, we got some bad news. What? They all ruled against you, 7-0. And every time their decisions came down, it's like, it's almost like a boxer getting knocked down mm -hmm. and you have to figure out a way to get back up. And I think it was like Gus Damata mm -hmm. had this phrase about, it's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up to fight. Mm -hmm. I got up a lot of times, you know? I mean, at one point during my case, I think the prosecutor said, well, 17 courts ruled against Marty. Well, that just means that I got up each and every time to come back fighting harder and harder. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to bore your listeners with the criminal. It's okay. After the Court of Appeals decision, I went to the federal court, mm -hmm. uh, the first level. The federal court ruled against me. Then we went to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, and this is what's important. Remember the name Guido Calabresi. Guido Calabresi is a judge, still a sitting judge, mm -hmm. on the Court of Appeals. Guido Calabresi wrote the opinion in my case where he said my Miranda rights were violated, but under state law, and since they were federal court, they couldn't do anything. But he said my Batson issue. Batson issue had to do with a case called Batson versus Kentucky and had to do with prosecutors excluding jurors based on race, religion, sex, creed. And at the time of my trial, my lawyer was very forward-thinking and said, the prosecutor is getting rid of every African-American juror. So we argued that exact issue in state court. All the state courts ruled against me. The district court ruled against me. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals said, no, there's something here. So we have to remand it down for a hearing. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know what? Here's a, here's a bright light. Like, here's something. Like, finally, somebody's seeing something. Mm -hmm. But it was also a bright light because finally a court said, yeah, you know, Mr. Tankliff, your rights were violated. So we took their decision and went back to the New York State Court of Appeals. And the appellate division said, listen, you both got it wrong. The Second Circuit just showed us that. They denied me. 
Now, when the case got remanded on this Batson issue to assess the jury issue, it ended up going back into self-accounting. You would think that, you know, after all this, that maybe it'd have a fair shot. No way. We ended up getting a judge Mm -hmm. whose daughter worked in the DA's office in the same division that was fighting to keep me in prison. The daughter's boss was the one prosecutor that was going to have to testify at the hearing. Nobody disclosed that at the hearing. We didn't know any of it. Wow. And the hearing, the, the judge wouldn't allow certain witnesses to testify, and obviously they ruled against me. But six months later, we uncovered that Why? the judge, the daughter, and this whole relationship, and we said, like, we want this case reopened up. We want a new hearing. Nope, denied. At that point, I had argued my case, you know, back down all the way up to the federal courts. I'd been up to the Supreme Court. And finally, the lawyers that were representing me, and one of them was Steve Braga, Mm -hmm. who said, what's never been done here, right? And we all said, well, what's never been really done was an investigation, right? Because McCready and his crew focused on me, developed institutional blinders of what we thought back then, and just left at that. Now- I have to backtrack to 1993 because it's important. In 1993, a woman by the name of Carleen Kovacs came forward to us and gave us a statement, which we ended up turning over to the DA's office. She said, I was at a party where Joseph Creedon, if you remember, Joseph Creedon was one of Todd Struman's henchmen, Mm -hmm. and Joseph Creedon confessed that he was the murderer of Marty's parents. This is 1993. Mm Mm-hmm. We gave that information to the DA's office in 1993. And they did nothing. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.